Good morning, church. I think most of you know me, but for the one or two who doesn't in the crowd, I'm Dave, one of your elders, and I've enjoyed uh, this series of Galatians. And one of the things as we worked through this and studied it, I'm sure all of us have noticed Paul's voice. It's pretty strong in these passages. And one of the things that uh, at least has occurred to me uh, at first glance is wondering whether or not is this guy just being a madman because he's upset about what's going on in the, in the churches? Can he not handle detractors? Is he being outrageous because he's angry at being upstaged? Or is it something more urgent? Something that may be imperiling the very lives of his readers? My hope is that by the time we finish at least exploring this passage, we'll be able to understand what Paul's seeing, what is happening to the Galatians, and why his response is so strong. I know one of the things I've learned over the years is that to give credence to people who have walked in the faith faithfully, uh, through struggles, through times of hardship, and even whether or not they're harsh or they're using nicer words, I want to be able to attune my my ears to them. And so I'm hoping as we study this, we will attune our hearts and our minds to what Paul is saying. Our text today will be Galatians 4.21 to 5.26. It's a pretty large section of scripture, so my intent is to break it up into smaller parts as I go through. So as we get ready to explore the text before us, let's commit our time and hearing to the one who has promised a new and better way to live, and he's given, a, given us himself as the very means to that end. Father, thank you for this time. Uh, we certainly lift it up to you, and it is our prayer that we would hear your words, Lord, that your spirit would give life to each one of us, that your words would come alive, that we would understand Paul's perspective and what is behind uh, not just the words, but the tone of his voice. May we hear you in all of this, in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to start off reading Galatians 5, 1 to 12. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Listen, I, Paul, tell you, that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you at all. And I testify again to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to be obey the whole law. You are trying to be declared righteous by the law. You who are trying to be declared righteous by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait expectantly for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision carries any weight. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. You were running so well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast makes the whole batch of dough rise. I'm confident in the Lord that you will accept no other view, but the one who is confusing you will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Now, brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, 
Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those agitators would go so far as to castrate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, we ask that you speak to us and prepare our hearts and minds to hear your voice. Amen. So what's going on here? Did Paul really want the Judaizers to castrate themselves just because of their push for circumcision? What does any of this have to do with freedom? I think the key to understanding this passage, and in fact the entire letter, actually rests in verse 11, where he says, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. We could easily pass too easily by that phrase and miss its importance. In fact, where it's placed in the letter in this entire passage uh, doesn't help to stand out. So I want us to take caution and actually prepare ourselves and take notice of what he is saying here. Since the early days of Damascus, Paul has been preaching the cross. The very centrality of the gospel is the cross. In its raw essence, the cross is offensive. The point that Paul is making in this section, and actually in the entire letter, is that true freedom depends on the offense of the cross. The next verse is the one where Paul says, I wish those agitators would just go so far as to castrate themselves. The offense of the cross is so vital to the gospel that he is telling the Judaizers not just to circumcise themselves, but to go the extra mile and fully emasculate themselves. He's quite serious because the gospel is seriously at risk. Let me repeat the phrase that I want us to kind of have resting in in the back of our minds as we go through this time. True freedom depends on the offense of the cross. To help us understand this, I want to get four points across. The first point is why the cross is offensive. If the cross is offensive, why is that? The second point Submitting to the law removes the offense of the cross. The third point, submitting to the flesh ignores the offense of the cross. And the fourth point, embracing the offense of the cross allows us to submit to the Spirit and rest in His completed work. So point number one, why the cross is offensive. As I looked at this, there were a number of facets that came to mind on the offense of the cross. There are two that I believe are germane to the defense of the faith that Paul is bringing forth in this letter. The first is this. So brace yourselves. Although this may be astonishing to hear, there is nothing about you and there is nothing about what you will do or can ever do that will make you worthy enough to receive the gift of grace that God offers through the cross. Let me repeat that. There is nothing in you and there is nothing in what you, you do 
or will ever do that will make you worthy enough to receive the grace of God that he offers through the cross. Excuse me, through the cross. Nothing. You are no more worthy than the person sitting next to you. No more worthy than the most judgmental Pharisee. But you're no less worthy than the greatest saint, someone like Mother Teresa. The problem is that I think, and imagine you do too, that I can make myself worthy without the cross. And this is offensive to my pride and self-righteousness. I want my thoughts and deeds, at least the better ones, to be used to earn my place at the table. Here's the second. The God who created you in his image is the only one who determines worth. You are the only creature created with his image. And because of that, you are of infinite worth. Your worth, not your worthiness, is infinite. It comes and overcomes any attempt to hide or to cover up. And this offends my shame, my self-rejection. No one can influence God or decide for him why someone is or isn't worth his time and attention. Praise God for that. Paul implores us to understand that no one is worthy of the cost of Jesus' life, but we are of infinite worth. God himself provides the sacrifice to restore us to himself. There is nothing that you or I can do to make yourself more worthy or less worthy. Knowing or doubting that the work of the cross is complete in and of itself is the difference between life and death. The cross accomplished all that the Father intended. There is nothing that can be added to it or taken away from its sufficiency to save humanity and bring us into a relationship with him and with the Holy Trinity. The integrity of the cross is what Paul is protecting at the cost of great suffering to himself. So, hopefully we'll have a better understanding of why the cross is, is offensive. So the second point is submitting to the law actually removes the offense of the cross. So how does submitting to the law remove the offense of the cross? I think the Judaizers in this entire passage provide the case in point. They are pushing the need to be circumcised in order to earn their place as true believers. Their arguments can seem persuasive. They appeal to legitimate desires, but they add to the work of the cross. They're saying that the cross alone isn't enough to get someone into that inner circle, God's inner circle. The Judaizers are saying that the work of grace they received at the beginning was insufficient for them to become worthy without doing something further. Would-be believers need need to follow additional rules in order to gain entrance into the family of God. The arguments asked for one seemingly innocuous act. It appeared reasonable to them, just a slight acceptance of the law. Of the law. But a little yeast leavens the whole, whole dough. Excuse me. So the Judaizers were saying that the work of grace, again, was insufficient for them 
The arguments ask that we do just accept a slight bit of the law. Surely following a set of actions is the right thing to get us in, isn't it? Hopefully we all believe no. Paul knew that this wasn't ultimately about circumcision per se. He saw that it was a choice between accepting God's provision exactly as he offered it or adding to it in order to make the offer more palatable, less offensive. The cross becomes less offensive if we can earn our salvation through obeying the law. If we obey just right, the cross becomes unnecessary. Even a small act of submitting to the law requires us to submit to the entire yoke of slavery. We think it moves us closer to God. It doesn't. It enslaves us to a life focused on what we must do or not do. The end effect is that a focus on obeying law pushes us away from God, pushes us away from his grace because we no longer have to depend solely on the completed work of Christ. Also, if we're earning our salvation, there's no need for repentance. The offense of the cross is removed. Before we cover the next two points that I want to make, I'd like to read Galatians 5.13 and 26. Talking about freedom again. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your flesh. For through love serve one another. For the whole law can be summed up in a single commandment. Namely, you must love your neighbor as yourself. However, if you continually bite and devour one another, beware that you are not consumed by one another. But I say live by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh has desires that are opposed to the Spirit, and the Spirit has desires that are opposed to the flesh. For these are in opposition to each other, so that you cannot do what you want. But... If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, depravity, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish rivalries, dissensions, factions, envying, murder, drunkenness, carousing, and similar things. I am warning you, as I had warned you before, those who practice such things cannot inherit, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also behave in accordance with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, being jealous of one another. Amen. So the third point, submitting to the flesh ignores the offense of the cross. Jesus, born of a virgin, God incarnate who lived a life free of sin, who took our sin on himself on the cross, who was raised from the dead, 
and now is alive in the life of each believer. God himself provided a divine and sinless lamb given to pay for our sins, past, present, and future. He did all the work to bring us into relationship with himself through his effort, through his promise. Good news, right? I'm hoping it is. <laughs> it is good news. But it's actually good news that can be misused or abused. The other side of the coin from the Judaizers is to not worry about or, in fact, ignore the offense of the cross. Do we need to listen to any internal conviction about our lifestyles or inner motives? Do we need to be mindful of our actions toward one another? After all, we're free to live however we want, right? We have license to express our authentic selves, regardless of how we might devout, devour, bite, treat one another, right? No. <laughs> All right, well, no. Thank you. When we treat the offering of grace as license to do whatever we want, as we indulge our flesh, we have bought into cheap grace. The cheap grace cannot inherit the kingdom of God because it is opposed to the work of the Spirit, the work that invites the King to reign inside of us. When we give ourselves over to the flesh, the, works, the work of the flesh is off, are obvious, and they can be seen for what they are. I won't go over it again, but Galatians 5, 19 and 20 are acts of violence. They're acts of violence against our soul and against your souls. When we yield to those works of the flesh, we crown other kings and make them idols. These idols dethrone the God of grace and, and oppose the Spirit's work to transform us more fully into the image of Christ. As with living under the law, if we are free to live only to ourselves and do what is right in our own eyes, we have no need for repentance. The offense of the cross can be ignored. So the first, fourth point, embracing the offense of the cross allows us to submit to the Spirit and rest in his completed work. So how do we walk by the Spirit? We do so by embracing the offense of the cross. We neither remove nor ignore its offense. Then and only then will we be on a narrow path to become the persons that we are called to be, active, spirit-led participants in the larger story of God's redemptive storyline for our time. We're set free to obey the law of love. We're set free to love others. We're set free to draw near our neighbors, not based on their worthiness, but their worth as image bearers. The cross, by the way, is a great equalizer. Through the cross, God provided a new and better circumcision, one that can be enjoyed by both men and women. It's a circumcision of the heart. It's designed and executed by the Holy Spirit to give life, one that gives life to our dead souls and transforms each one of us into Christ's image from the inside out. The cross requires no added effort on our part. We are learning together that it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that is good news 
from our good and gracious God who wants us to be fully alive to live for him and for others. But at the same time, we see this Ishmael-like flesh persecuting the life of grace in our souls. We face a daily reminder that the fall has affected us beyond what we either recognize or want to acknowledge. Life between the fallen heaven requires that we live in submission to the work of the cross. This involves both a yielding to the spirit and throwing out the slave, slave woman and her son Ishmael as Paul described in Galatians chapter 4, verse 30. Now that passage where throwing out the slave woman and her son Ishmael is rightly referring to throwing out the Judaizer persecutors of that church. But I believe it has an extended meaning of throwing out the Ishmaelite works of the flesh in each one of us that persecute the grace-generated life of walking in the Spirit, the work that the Spirit of God is working inside of us. We are reminded daily that the reality of daily living is not without seeing the effects of this flesh-spirit struggle. So how do we live life well while the struggle goes on inside our souls? We throw out the inclinations of the flesh and submit to, the, to walk in the Spirit, not in our own strength, but by remembering. Remembering what Jesus has already done. We see him crucified. We join him in his crucifixion. We do this by acknowledging and confessing our sin, by repenting, by having the gospel repeatedly recited to us, sometimes by ourselves, sometimes by a very good friend. We do this over and over because this side of heaven, I'm sorry to say, the struggle will never cease. But unlike Ishmael, we are invited by God into the freedom of walking by the Spirit as we learn to rest in the completed work of Christ. I struggle with this a lot every day. Things are coming in. They get exposed by talking with a person. They get exposed because I get irritated at someone. Not my wife, of course. And God raises up, and he lets me see what's going on. And when I recognize it, I confess it as sin. I repent of it. And I receive the gospel, the good news that it's been paid for. One of the things that God has used in my life of the verse is Psalm 139, 23 and 24, where I, along with David, ask, God, search me and know my heart. See if there's any idolatrous way in me and then lead me in the ancient paths, the reliable ancient paths. There are idolatrous ways in each one of us. Thank goodness we have a God who's willing to expose those. Thank goodness that we have the Spirit that works in us to confess, to repent, and to receive His grace. But for those workers who are amongst us, I don't want to be misinterpreted because I'm not talking about idle when I say rest. God is not opposed to effort, only earning. Thank you, Stephen. I am saying that our best movements in doing, what I'm saying is that our best movements in doing the work he's called us to do 
will be out of a place of rest in that completed work. As we learn to rest and listen to the Spirit, our acts of love will be guided by the Spirit more than out of our untrained hopes or passions. George Herbert has, he's a poet, Christian poet from 16th century or 17th. He says, go not abroad for every call or quest of an untrained hope or passion. And that has helped settle me in to learning a bit more about God's grace, how he's moving in me before I pursue something that I think is worthwhile pursuing. So let us move forward with good, flourishing works that are informed by wisdom and knowledge, guided by the Spirit, and ignited by our love for God and for our neighbor. Here's an amazing fact. As we walk in the Spirit and serve our neighbors in His love, the growth of the fruit of the Spirit is inevitable. It is inevitable. Because God is the one who calls the growth of His fruit. It's not our fruit. It's His fruit of the Spirit. It's not our efforts. We, what a joy that we have as we begin to see the growth of the fruit of the Spirit in each other's lives. It's the transforming life and the power of his work within us. Lord, help us to learn, to rest, to entrust ourselves to your gracious care. Help us to enter the rest of your resurrected life, the life that gives the power to surrender, the power to worship when we don't feel like it, the power to look up when we are in the depths of the pit. The power to see the light of Christ when all around is darkness. Then we will know the joy and peace of living more fully in you. The triune God and your glory. The joy and peace to give up our lives for others. The joy and peace to live a life of love in the service of our neighbors. Amen.